0: Hello and welcome to another issue of the Anesthesia Compass podcast. This is Mike Dobson. Last time I was talking to Ray Towie about his clinical experiences of intensive care in Africa, and we continue our conversation today, talking about the realities of organising and setting up intensive care training and retaining staff. Ray, when we spoke earlier, You were telling us quite a lot about the clinical work that you did, the sort of patients that you had, uh, the sort of equipment that you had in the ICU, uh, but I think I don't know whether you'd agree with me that the most valuable resource in, a, in an intensive care unit uh, is the trained staff and you've already said that you have many fewer of those uh, in Lature How do you manage uh, with a low staff ratio and where do you get even the trained staff that you that you have are they are they trained in La chore do people move around in the country Uh, are you able to retain staff
1: at the moment we do have a anaesthetic officer training school when i started we were training what we've called anaesthetic assistants they were nurses who were trained up that's developed into a more career guided status position the nurses we've they, we've had a nursing school and a midwife school in St. measure for for a couple of decades so the, if you look if you just look at the nurses they were what we would call in the old days enrolled nurses so they were maybe a two-year training ma- mainly practical And so my big question was, I mean, I knew that if I could stay up all night, seven days a week, I could manage patients. But could I train, would the nurses be able to cope with the problems? And would they be open to training? And would they be open to the psychological um, trauma of actually dealing in an ICU? And, And I thought, you know, Could our nurses, would our nurses do it? And if they could do it, could they be happy doing it? Because there would be no point if they did it out of just um, orders from Matrix. And the amazing thing was that they didn't get any extra money for working in the ICU. They did get an extra status because every other nurse in the hospital knew that those nurses were special they could manage things that the average nurse could not manage. And if they had a, a relative, they wanted them to go to ICU so they could be managed by those particular nurses. Now, I always ask myself, and, I would, and, and sometimes I would ask them, well, why do you stay here? Uh, you know, I mean, uh, it's hard work. It's harder work than anywhere else. Some, the, the trauma can be very difficult. You lose a lot of patients and they're young people and people are stressed in the ICU and they often they can be a little bit rude to you it's it's, it's not it's not an easy place to be why do you do it and I, I, I never got a clear answer but I think the reason I mean just observing them is that the sheer professional joy of seeing very very sick patients get better was why they stayed now, after about five years in the ICU, I, the matron gave me free rein. Basically, they even told the nurses, "You cannot leave the ICU unless I give permission." <laughs> Which I found, you know, I, I, I was like, I wasn't like a tyrant. But they would come to me and they say, "Please, I, I must leave ICU. I'm exhausted." And I say, "Yes, yes, that's okay now. I've already, we've got enough nurses now for a core of, of training. You have permission to leave." And they left with a bit of sorrow because they knew they were leaving a unit that had developed their own professional skills very much they knew they couldn't manage it forever and they needed a rest and th- th- sometimes they would say to me i'll come back after my baby's g- grown up or something like that and now it's not such a problem because we have a core of rotating nurses or even some nurses who were in icu left to rest and came back and so once you develop a core, the first two years I was there, I, I, I was training every single nurse and every single shift. And it was quite tiring, but I was much younger then. Now I can say, well, that nurse over there is trained. And I know the person who trained her, she will train you. And I, I, the burden on me wasn't so much.
0: You've been a number of years associated with the chore, and and before that in in Tanzania. Have you seen significant improvements in resources for intensive care in in recent years?
1: Resources have improved slowly. Um, And if you look at the data, the life expectancy in in Sub-Saharan Africa, if you exclude um, war zones, has it has developed tremendously over the last 20 years. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's now in the lower 60s, and when I went first to rural sub-Saharan Africa, it was in the mid-40s. So, yes, there are improvements. <clears throat> but then, the, you know, there, there is an expectation then from the people that they, they, um, they, they expect more. So, when, you know, when I first started, people didn't expect much, and they didn't get much and we were able to make a change but your your life expectancy of course you know is your your immunization programs are better and your general health is better and your nutrition is better so all those things you know factor into having a good outcomes if all that is possible and i'm you know i'm i i i I have been focused always on my own area of clinical um, um interest uh, but all the other factors, insecurity is another factor, but all those factors, you know, come in. So things are improving, but we're still really left with, you know, um, heart transplants, renal transplants, all you know, the, I, I remember I, I wrote a small article on, uh, you know, heart bypass for dogs, you know, I mean, the the care of of domestic animals in Europe is is better than the average care um, for a patient in rural Africa. And uh, so, you know, I I live with this knowledge that what I would get in the NHS is so much better than what my patients in in rural Africa would ever even dream of. So you're always left with that tension, you know, that um, this is, it's terrible that, situation is so poor and yet you have to do what you can with what you've got and and um, celebrate what you can do and and enjoy working with some people who you know for very little money do so much
0: if you uh were to make a list of unmet needs and the the things that you might reasonably expect to get better i don't mean you know a rolls-royce for everybody uh but uh uh, the, obviously there 's a range of things that you can do and do well with the intensive care that you 've got. What would be your your next ambition? What would you like to be able to do better uh, in terms of of uh, training for people or in terms of w- what more equipment you would need i think in in two thousand and seven you wrote that you you had only one pulse oximeter and i, I hope you 've got a few more than that now um, so feel free to range a, around on on what 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 is your Uh, shopping list of kit uh, but also other resources and infrastructure that would make things even better than they are now.
1: The highest item that I would request now would be for African anesthesiologists to go to the rural areas. When I went to St. Mary's Le Chaux, I was the, I was, there was no clinical anesthesiologist there at all. So I was an expatriate missionary anesthesiologist in St. Mary's Le Chore Guru. And as a consequence, I had the capacity to develop that unit and that department. I wasn't head of department, there was an African non-physician who was head of department and I was very happy to work in that role. Now there is one african anesthesiologist there he is the only african anesthesiologist in the entire clinical anesthesia in the entire of northern uganda the division now between the needs and the hopes is that they are producing anesthesiologists but they're all staying in the city so i always add the term when i talk about rural sub-saharan african intensive care units the word is rural there's no private practice in the rural areas Um, nobody wants to go there and the division isn't so much between europe and africa and in a sense when you have meetings of african anesthesiologists and european australian north american anesthesiologists that they coalesce they're quite close that they, they will that they, they will, could be doing things you know that were very similar to what's happening in in europe but the real challenge and about 60 percent of people in rural in in rural sub-saharan africa of the population are in the rural areas so how do we get anesthesiologists local anesthesiologists to see it as a commitment to be in those areas where um, there are no anesthesiologists and my second request would be <clears throat> to somehow increase the status of the non physician anesthetist who are carrying the enormous workload that they're doing without any anesthesiology support, usually without any anesthesiology support. So when I look now at the division, when I first went to Africa, it was between Europe, North America, Japan, Australia, and Africa. Now it's more subtle. It's between the urban areas of Africa And the rural areas.
0: Indeed. Um, One solution I saw in uh, Zambia uh, was a mission hospital that uh, wanted to attract more doctors, particularly junior doctors, to come and and do their very good training but it was very remote and so they set up a very good school and a very good internet access um, and you could get better internet and better schooling for nothing uh, by moving to this mission hospital than if you stayed in Lusaka. Uh, and I thought that was a really positive thing. Uh, but obviously, it's, it's, uh, it's a major strategic thing to do, to say, oh, let's, let's just have a school. You know, it's not like, not like saying, let's just have a different meringoscope uh, l- or a different airway or something. But uh, that was one thing that, uh, that really encouraged me. Um, how do you see hospitals in the rural areas developing intensive care wards? Because obviously St. Mary's, wonderful as it is, uh, if not unique, is quite a rarity uh, in rural Africa. Um, are there intermediate steps that hospitals can take to start moving in the right direction?
1: I would like to see the development of intensive care nursing so that we had nurses in the more peripheral hospitals who had been through a unit like St. Mary's and that when an anaesthetist, physician or non-physician, anesthesiologist or non-physician has a problem in theatre and brings the patient maybe to a ward and says well they're not ready yet for extubation or they are extubated but they're still unstable then that nurse would would know what to do. So I think one of the breakthroughs would be, and I'm not in a position to do this really, but opening a nursing school of intensive care nurses. Now, in for the rural areas, I think would be a, a big help. The problem is the urban areas are the political focus and they would probably be absorbed back into the urban areas. So I don't know how that would be defended for the rural areas. So that's going to be a problem. You know, it's um, I, I don't see a clear solution to that. But if we could keep the nurses in the rural areas, the good ones who want to do intensive care, the ones who have that stamina and and uh, ability to do that and, and uh, like the challenge, if we could keep them in the rural areas and develop them with a few doctors, and of course the non-physician uh, anesthetist would be the, the main work that, uh, uh, plan that way we work with. And that would be, I think, a way forward. But um, maybe getting a school is a, is one another solution. If that sounds like a good solution, <laughs> is
0: is there a, a career pathway for uh, a clinical officer anesthetist to find himself or herself doing mostly intensive care? Rather than being through no. to the floor in the operating theatre.
1: No, it's it's all in the rural areas. It's it's in the theatre. Hmm. Uh, it 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 it, it, it's a, it has been even for me, which is a very privileged position in that particular hospital. Even for me, it was quite hard to pull people out of the theatre. Um, as as we got more as we got busier and busier, when we weren't so busy, I could do most of the work, and I'd get a little help. But as we got very, very busy and we're doing, you know, just tremendous work, then the surgeons would exert their influence, which was fair, and they would say, Look, I have to cancel the thyroidectomy because you're looking after a patient who's an overdose. And I would say, Well, yes, but this patient who needs who has the overdose, if I if we don't have the, you know, we will lose this patient. But your thyroidectomy could be delayed a day or two so that sort of discussion often in that culture can become a bit toxic <laughs> so you you don't make friends uh, by pulling people out of theater and i i think you're into then the realm of resources within the hospital and that's quite a a, a murky area to get into and you can be uh, you can get into difficult situations there so it's not easy and, and and these are situations where the anesthetic officers that wanted to do some intensive care uh, with me found themselves in in the same situation. I mean, I could shrug off you know confrontations and and some you know professional um, embarrassments but as non as as you know as local people who didn't have the status of being a doctor then they they found it quite brutalizing so um the answer to your question is there is no secure way of developing a career structure for non-physician uh, intensive care people, although they are perfectly capable of doing it and will save many lives.
0: Mm. Yeah. Well, it's food food for thought there. Finally, let me let me just take you outside the hospital for a minute because uh, uh, people might not have heard of La Chaux as a place, but many people will have heard of Gulu. Uh, because that was the focus of a lot of conflict and civil war for many years. Uh, How did that affect you personally? How did it affect the hospital and the ICU outcomes?
1: Well, when I first went to uh, Gulu, northern Uganda, the Lord's Resistance Army were in full flight rebellion against the government. Um, And the leader was Joseph Kony, who in actual terms, um, he's still alive, he, he is a psychopathic killer. And um, it was, I found it, I, I didn't go there because I had any special <laughs> desire to be in a war zone. And he wasn't a war zone like, like, you know, there were bombs dropping everywhere, but, but there were ambushes every night. There would be some, not every night, but often there would be ambushes. You'd get 20 people coming in, having been blown up or shot. Uh, there were no immunizations done. Uh, you know, the, the health centers were, were, were closing down. It was, there was no security for healthcare workers outside the hospital. The hospital itself was rarely attacked because we would care for the, the, the rebels as well as the um, government soldiers. So we, we were a resource for both. And we, you know, um, so, so in that sense, we were a bit secure so long as you never left the hospital. And you know, for years, I hardly ever left the hospital. So, but these, but I, I, I'd always, I had a, a faith commitment that nonviolent conflict resolution was, was of course the, the best way to deal with all human problems. I, I, I had the, the possibility of seeing whether I actually believed in it, as a practicality, when I was in, in Gulu. and um, I, I, I saw what. Violent conflict on both sides does to the human person, both the government and the rebels. And I was just affirmed even more so that you know, if unless we have non-conflict resolution, you know, we we are doomed as a as a species. So I, I found that I mean, I didn't go there because of that. I went there because there was an opportunity to work in a rural hospital where there was no anesthesiologist and they were developing their theatre and their services and i i had the privilege of working with people who were trying to maintain a different uh ethos than what was around in the violent surroundings and that to me that was one of the most privileged positions that i found myself that was a blessing to me as a doctor in that area and and i i worked with some very brave people
0: Ray, thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you. Listeners to this podcast might be interested in joining the World Anesthesia Society, a specialist society based in the UK for anaesthetists with an interest in working in low-income regions of the world. It's a way of linking up with like-minded people and publishes a regular newsletter. Do have a look at the WAS website at worldanesthesia.uk. You can subscribe to this and future podcasts wherever you normally go to access your podcasts by searching for Anesthesia Compass. But for now, from me it's goodbye. Goodbye.